Welcome to the Ridley College Chapel podcast. Our mission is to equip men and women for God's mission in a rapidly changing and increasingly complex world. For more information, visit ridley.edu.au. Good morning, everyone. Um, the Bible reading for today comes from uh, 1 Kings chapter 21, verses 1 to 16. So that's found on page 363 on your pew Bibles. So 1 Kings chapter 21. Verses 1 to 16. Some time later, there was an incident involving a vineyard belonging to Naboth the Jezreelite. The vineyard was in Jezreel, close to the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. Ahab said to Naboth, Let me have your vineyard to use for a vegetable garden, since it is close to my palace. In exchange, I will give you a better vineyard, or if you prefer, I will pay you whatever it is worth. But Naboth replied, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my ancestors. So Ahab went home, sullen and angry, because Naboth the Jezreelite had said, I will not give you my inheritance of my my ancestors. He lay on his bed, sulking, and refused to eat. His wife Jezebel came in and asked, Why are you sullen? Why won't you eat? He answered her, Because I said to Naboth the Jezreelite, Sell me your vineyard, or if you prefer... I will give you another vineyard in its place. But he said, I will not give you my vineyard. Jezebel, his wife, said, Is this how you act as king of Israel? Get up and eat. Cheer up. I will get you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name, placed his seal on them, and sent them to the elders and nobles who lived in Naboth's city with him. In those letters, she wrote, Proclaim a day of fasting and give Naboth a prominent seat among the people. But put two scoundrels opposite him and get them to bring charges that he has cursed both God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. So the elders and nobles who lived in Naboth's city did as Jezebel directed in the letters she had written to them. They proclaimed a fast and seated Naboth in a prominent place among the people. Then two scoundrels came and sat opposite him and brought charges against Naboth before the people, saying, Naboth has cursed both God and king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death. Then they sent word to Jezebel, Naboth has been stoned to death. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned to death, She said to Ahab, Get up and take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, that he refused to sell you. He is no longer alive, but dead. When Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, he got up, went down to take possession of Naboth's vineyard. Hear the word of the Lord. Great to be with you. My name is Andrew, teach Old Testament here. and uh, most of you know that, I teach you. There, go. Um, those who don't know, it's wonderful to meet you as well and to open the word. Uh, we met uh, Jezebel last week. We found out who here has the Jezebel spirit, not the thing, the book. And we uh, realized that Jezebel is not the seductress, not the kind of sexual promiscuous figure that popular culture has made her. She is far more interesting and deadly than that. We met Jezebel, who is actually a political genius, uh, who is actually quite impressive in an evil kind of way. So in terms of my favourite evil characters in the Bible, Jezebel is it. 
So we, um, we saw the story of how she became queen uh, over Israel, the northern kingdom. Remember, we're in the divided kingdom phase. Uh, Israel uh, in the north, confusingly also called Israel. Uh, in the south, we have Judah. Remember, New South Wales, Victoria, evil, good. That's how it goes together, right? Remembering this. And uh, we saw how she led Israel further astray, away from worshipping um, God into compromise. The sin of compromise is really what she introduced uh, in there. But there were faithful people within Israel, weren't there? Obadiah, Elijah, and the 7,000 people who didn't bow the knee to Baal, uh, who held on, uh, stayed firm, didn't kind of run away or give in to compromise, but stood firm against the crosswinds of the culture, refusing to compromise on worship. So that's the vertical dimension of the sin of Jezebel. But there's another dimension to her story, which I'm going to call the horizontal dimension, which is the injustice that she introduced with her husband into Israel. And we actually see that they're connected and God actually cares about the horizontal as well as the vertical corruption of Israel. So that's where we're going today. Um, It's uh, going to be interesting and, and perhaps a little bit spicy because we might even talk about politics today. We ready for that? I'm not ready for that. I'm going to pray and then we'll get into it. (laughs) Almighty God, thank you uh, that you are the same God we meet in the book of Kings. Uh, You are the God who cares deeply about our our worship, uh, but you also care deeply about the way we treat the powerless, the poor, the unprotected in society. So I pray that we would um, have open hearts now and please give us a a spirit of grace and uh, thinking the best of each other, particularly of me, uh, as we confront difficult topics. I pray that we would be kind um, to, to each other as we think about difficult things in society. Amen. All right, so uh, we're looking at the sequel. It's a, 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 in chapter 21 of uh, 1 Kings. Get it open. Um, but before we, we get into this passage, I just want to remind you about a verse that I didn't address in the first half of Jezebel's story. If you weren't here, this is not going to make a lot of sense. Uh, that's why you should come to chapel if you can. Um, last time, there was this little verse in chapter 16 that sort of seemed a little bit out of place. They're telling the story of Jezebel corrupting the worship of Israel. And it says this random verse, in the days of Heel of Bethel, um, in his days, sorry, (laughs) I can't even read. In his days, Heel of Bethel built Jericho. Wait, hang on, why are we talking about this? He laid its foundation at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. Now, hang on. We're just in the middle of Kings, and we've had a flashback from the book of Joshua about a random, fairly insignificant prophecy to do with the city um, of Jericho. So if you um, have been doing Old Testament 001, you remember there was this prophecy um, about Jericho that when it's destroyed, no one will rebuild it, and if they do, they'll do it at the cost um, of, of, uh, you know, at a great cost. And we have this random reminder here, seemingly out of context in the middle of the story of Jezebel, that Jericho um, was rebuilt at the cost of this guy's children. Now, whether that was child sacrifice or whether they died some other way, um, people can speculate. But what does it have to do with Ahab? Well, I'll tell you what I think it has to do with Ahab. This is one of these long-running prophecies in the Bible. It's a long arc. Back in Joshua, there's a, a prophecy And then way forward into the future in the book of Kings, we have the fulfillment of that prophecy. What does that show us? God always keeps his promises. In the long run, what God says will happen, happens. In the end, God's word has the final say. And if God's word hasn't come about, it's not the end. 
I think that's what we're being reminded here. And we'll see as we look at the story of Jezebel, that's very pertinent to her because she seems to get away with a lot, but not in the end. All right, so let's get into the story of Naboth's uh, vineyard. Um, there was an incident, chapter 21, verse 1, involving a vineyard belonging to Naboth the Jezreelite. The vineyard was in Jezreel, close to the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. Now, this is a relatively unimportant guy, right? Uh, Naboth, he's just a guy with a vineyard who has the, uh, I guess, misfortune of being a neighbor of the king. That's about it, right? It's, it's not a particularly powerful character. Uh, he's just a run-of-the-mill vineyard owner. Think of him as a peasant. Uh, he is a minor player in the story. He has very little control over his situation. He just owns this vineyard, which has been in the family for a long time. So uh, we think of sort of like the property market, if you stay somewhere for 10 or 15 years, that's a long-term investment. But uh, in, in that world, your connection to your land runs deep. Okay? Your ancestral lands are not something that you just sell if you can avoid it. Right? It's a deep connection to the land. It's part of your identity, and it's not something that you walk away from easily. So he has this... Um, this field, but King Ahab is his next-door neighbour. And that's where things start to go downhill for Naboth right, in his choice of next-door neighbour. Ahab said to Naboth, let me have your vineyard to use for a vegetable garden, since it is close to my palace. In exchange, I will give you a better vineyard, or if you prefer, I will pay you whatever it's worth. Right, so Ahab decides that his vineyard is in the perfect place and he would like to grow some vegetables or something. Right, so he asks Naboth if he can buy the field. And Naboth, of course, says, no, you can't buy my field. This is my identity. This is my family inheritance. I'm not going to sell you my kind of family identity and farm and um, means of kind of livelihood. I'm not going to give that to you. Sorry, king. And so Ahab goes home in socks because he didn't get his vegetable patch. <laughs> right. Now, I think we are meant to find Ahab a little bit pathetic in this story, by the way. I think we're right to, to smile a little bit at this. So he goes home and he refuses to eat his dinner. because he didn't have the right vegetables in it that he was hoping to grow. And he goes and lies in his bed all mopey. And is anyone who's um, married to someone who mopes? I'm not. <laughs> Stress for the tape. Um, <laughs> it's not a good thing, right, when your husband, say, is moping. And so uh, Jezebel's like, oh, for goodness sake. So she, she does something about it. Ahab went home sullen and angry, verse 4, because Naboth the Jezreelite had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my ancestors. He lay in his bed sulking and refused to eat. So Jezebel says, are you or are you not the king of Israel? Come on. You grown man? Deal with your own problems. Is this how you act as king over Israel, verse 7? Get up and eat. He's like, all right, cheer up. I'll get you the vineyard. So she, she, um, she's the active one in their, in their relationship. She's all the one, the one that the narrator's always describing as doing things. And, and in this story, it's the same. Right? So she's the real power in the, in the couple. So what does she do? Well, she deals with it very efficiently. Doesn't, like, really lift a finger. Well, she does. She gets a pen. Right? She writes some letters in her husband's name. You can see who's really calling the shots here. Arranging for a day of fasting. So arranging for a religious sort of observance, and um, has this wonderful plan for Naboth to be seated, seated at a point of honour in the fast, which he might have thought was a big, like he might have thought, ooh, who, me? <laughs> what a privilege. Not a privilege. 
right? It's a trap. And so he, um, he gets to sit up there and she arranges for some scoundrels, right? some people of low reliability to sit there near him and trap him by um, essentially lying about what he said. Seat two scoundrels, verse 10, opposite him and have them bring charges that he has cursed both God and the king. Right? Two capital crimes, blasphemy and treason. Then take him out and stone him to death. You got a problem, Ahab? He doesn't want to sell your field? Let's release the capital. Right? Let's get rid of Naboth. So she uses a religious moment, quite cruelly and ruthlessly, a religious observance, the, the, the fast, in order to assassinate someone who is just has the misfortune of owning a field that her husband wants and is moping about. There you go, honey. I got you your field. And that really uh, kind of should be the end of the story in terms of the world that we're being shown in the book of Kings. It's a world in which powerful people like Jezebel do what they want and no one can get in their way. She is ruthless, she's immoral, she's deadly efficient, and she wins in the end. Because that's the world we live in, isn't it? where powerful people get away with it. Don't mess with Jezebel. I, th- I like to imagine her like um, Claire in um, the, uh, the uh, Underwood pair. Do you know the, what I'm talking about, the show um, uh, House of Cards? Maybe this is kind of not, not your thing, but it's like uh, if, the, if the West Wing is too idealistic for you, have like a dose of like deep like existential despair, right? Because she is ruthless. She always gets what she wants, and that's Jezebel. Now, in a way, it's surprising that the writer of Kings puts so much emphasis on this story. Like Naboth gets a whole chapter, whereas some whole kings get like a verse. Why is there such a focus on this no-name guy? Well, he has a name, but not very important guy, Naboth, who has a vineyard and who uh, does nothing, says nothing really except no, and then pays for it with his life. On the grand scale of nations rising and falling, of the depravity of the northern worship falling into this kind of Baal worship compromise thing. Why do we care about this guy in his field? Is this the most important thing going on at this grand international political stage? Who cares? Who cares about Naboth? Like, I'm very sorry for him. At the end of the day, surely there are bigger things that we could be worried about here in the book. Who cares? Well, I'll tell you who cares. God cares. God cares about this no-name guy who crosses paths with Jezebel. And I think that's telling. There's something about God who he, he knows and he sees and the blood of Naboth becomes a fixed point in the book of Kings that all these international events will surround, what will circle around as we'll see in a moment. And so enter Elijah, who um, all along the way has been um, getting uh, on the uh, nerves of Ahab and Jezebel in different ways. And he has a message. Actually, someone does care. The word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, verse 18. Go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who rules in Samaria. He is now in Naboth's vineyard. See, it's still Naboth's vineyard, even though Naboth's dead. Where he has gone to take possession of it. Say to him, this is what the Lord says. Have you not murdered a man and seized his property? And here we get a word of the Lord, a prophecy that will become true. This is what the Lord says. In the place where dogs licked up Naboth's blood, dogs will lick up your blood. Yes, yours. And we already know um, from a little um, kind of aside back in 1 Kings chapter 16, that little 
thing about the um, Jericho being rebuilt, that when God says something, doesn't matter how, like it might be a while, but watch this space, okay? Watch Naboth's vineyard because it's going to become important even on the grand political sort of like nations rising and falling kind of stage. The word of the Lord always happens in the end. If it hasn't happened, it's just not the end. And so we read on in Kings and so uh, this blood of Naboth comes back. And it all comes to a head during a battle between nations. Now we've zoomed out to the big international stage. Ahab and the king of Judah actually for a brief moment are working together and they go into battle against Aram. And um, they've gone to a great deal of trouble to make sure the king doesn't get killed, including like disguises and stuff. But then we read in chapter 22, verse 34, someone draws a bow at random. Right? Someone's got a you know, work experience kid in the, in the army is just like set off you know, an arrow. Whoops, oh, sorry. You know, not well trained uh, in those days sometimes. And hit the king of Israel between the sections of his armor. It's like an absolute like bullseye. Now, when the text says drew his bow at random, it's not really random, is it? Because the word of the Lord is driving the narrative along. Because the word of the Lord uh, always comes about in the end. So the king died and was brought to Samaria, verse 37, and they buried him there. They washed the chariot at the pool of Samaria. The chariot was just full of his blood because he'd been sitting there all day watching the battle dying. uh, They washed the chariot, washed out the blood in the pool of Samaria, and the dogs licked up his blood as the word of the Lord had declared. So this random work experience kid in the army hits him through the, um, the armor, and suddenly that's how God brings down the king of, the north, uh, of northern Israel. Ahab dealt with. What about Jezebel? Well, she uh, is the last person standing in the house of Ahab. Later, Elisha anoints Yehu, to go and destroy finally the house of Ahab, right? It's the end of the line for Ahab. That's part of the punishment. And um, he does. And the last person to be killed is Jezebel. And I'll just read you the story because it is um, a gripping scene. And I don't think I can tell it better than the narrator. So we're, um, uh, what chapter are we in? Chapter, uh, 2 Kings, chapter 9, verse 30. Then Yehu went to uh, Jezreel. When Jezebel heard about it, she put on eye makeup, arranged her hair, and looked out of a window. It's a, almost a unique moment of detail. You slow down as she looks at the, the judgment of the Lord coming. It's such an incredible moment in, in, in the Bible. As Yehu entered the gate, she asked, have you come in peace, you Zimri, you murder of your master? Zimri had you know, killed his master, so it's a bit of a slur. He looked up at the window and called out, who is on my side? Who? Two or three eunuchs looked down at him. Throw her out. Throw her down, Yehu said. So they threw her down and some of her blood splattered the wall and the horses as they trampled her underfoot. Yehu went in and ate and drank. Take care of that cursed woman, he said, and bury her, for she was a king's daughter. But when they went out to bury her, 
they found nothing except her skull, her feet and her hands. They went back and told Yehu, who said, this is the word of the Lord that he spoke through his servant Elijah the Tishbite. On the plot of ground at Jezreel, dogs will devour Jezebel's flesh. Jezebel's body will be like dung on the ground in the plot at Jezreel so that no one will be able to say, this is Jezebel. In other words, this insignificant man's field has come back and is the location and is the cause in God's justice of the downfall of the whole house of Ahab and Jezebel. The word of the Lord always comes about. If it hasn't come about, it's not the end. Now, it's confronting for us to see this violence, but we're not meant to feel sorry for Jezebel. We're meant to see this as God's final act of judgment on her for her idolatry, but also for the injustice, the injustice she was responsible for, even in small ways. I mean, this is what she did with Naboth. She had a long reign. She would have done other things as well, but this this field of Naboth is meant to stand for her, if you like, horizontal crimes against people in Israel. So part of the... um, The judgment on Ahab and Jezebel is not just for introducing false worship in the land, but also for the way they treat the poor, the powerless, the unprotected. The mistreatment of Naboth is not forgotten, and so Jezebel dies in the very field that she had organised to be stolen. And I think this is really important for us in reminding us that God cares about the vertical but also the horizontal. Now, depending on what Christian tradition you come from, great thing about Ridley is we come from all sorts of different church backgrounds. My observation is, please don't shoot me. My observation is different traditions tend to major on one or the other. Right? You either are like pure worship, it's all about getting our doctrine right, but we don't have time for social justice. A minister told me that once. Right? We don't have time for social justice, we have to preach the gospel. And I told him I don't have time for sexual morality, I have to preach the gospel. He didn't like that as much. I was joking, by the way. <laughs> right, it's ridiculous. It's a ridiculous comment. I don't have time to be godly. I'm too busy preaching the gospel. What a ridiculous thing to say. On the other hand, other church traditions just major on justice because that's sort of where you go when you no longer have faith in God, but you still believe in the values in the Bible. Right? That's a wonderful place for Christian faith to come to die. You no longer believe in the supernatural. And so we become a, a, a social group based around the teachings of Jesus, but without Jesus.